Liz Sumner, and this is I Always Wanted To, the podcast that asks, what are you doing or creating or trying now that you have the time? That someday you've been waiting for is here. Hi everyone, Liz here. I just wanted to interject a little explanation about this interview. Personally, I love to listen to smart people tell me about stuff they're passionate about, even if I don't completely understand it. I just let it wash over me and pick up whatever I'm able to. I've wanted to learn more about sound engineering for a long time, since I started performing, and especially after I got a computer capable of digital recording. And speaking of recording... I'm limited by my less-than-adequate internet connection. You may notice audio distortion during the interview. It's particularly annoying when we're talking about striving for high-quality sound. I hope you aren't too bothered by it. Now, hang on to your headphones and prepare to learn all about the physics of sound. My guest today is bass player and sound engineer Steve Armstrong. Steve fell in love with the stand-up bass at an early age and has played in rock and roll and jazz bands ever since. He is just about to finish a 39-year career as the main academic audio support person at Keene State College in New Hampshire, where he provides audio recording support for all campus events, touring music acts, and a small audio production studio. Welcome, Steve. Hello, Liz. How are you? I'm very happy to have you here. I wanted to talk to you about sound engineering because it fascinates me and baffles me. I've watched you work in the studio and tried my hand at home recording, and I've always wanted to understand better how it's done. What makes instruments and voices sound better? So where should I start? Uh, Well, to me, it's understanding the sound of an instrument. You know, how how do you capture the full body of something? The human voice pretty much just comes out of your out, out of the, the mouth. But a guitar, everything resonates. A trumpet, like the voice, it's it's sort of a straight on thing. Trusting your ears and, and, and good listening. Try to devoid yourself of thought and judgment. Just listen to what you hear. And and maybe from from the judgment point of view, find something find something that you want to record. I mean, you know, you don't want to record just you know a snoring cat. I mean, you want to <laughs> unless that's your thing. <laughs> That to me is a good start. So what are some of the differences between setting up sound for a performance and sound for a recording? Well, so, you know, my, my approach, I'm sort of an acoustic guy, you know, studying string bass first and then, you know, years of playing electric bass, I still go back to the classical ethos of, of trying to balance everything naturally. You know, I think of a I think of a band as as a, as a almost organic entity that responds to each other, and if if you take that away, I think you end up losing uh, the quality of performance and the interactivity of the performance. So when I do a a live band, I, I would try to keep it keep the stage the stage volume similar to a, a rehearsal volume. As far as the miking technique, you want to capture each instrument as naturally as you can. Unfortunately, in a live performance situation, you're, you're always dealing with the variations of, of acoustics of the room. And, and then part of that would be the reflection or 
the return from the PA back into the microphone so for feedback. So where you can mic a classical guitar in a studio with a couple of microphones placed, you know, one, one near the sound hole finger where your fingers are, but then you want to capture the whole instrument. The piano, you want to have something over the hammers, but you also need to capture the soundboard and balance, you know, the end from end to end on, on, on the piano. A recording technique for a real acoustic instrument, any, any real acoustic instrument, well, that has a multiple, you know, like, like a piano or a soundboard or a guitar that has a, the piano has a soundboard, a guitar resonates. Uh, string bass would be, is very difficult to, to make sound good live. Trumpet's not so bad. Voice is not, you know, a microphone on a voice is, is pretty natural. Anyway, the balance of all that makes it a little more difficult to, to amplify a real acoustic instrument. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. And, uh, and it's a roundabout way to get there. <laughs> well, it makes me realize that, oh my God, there's so much to learn. Since I probably won't be setting up sound on a stage, I'll probably just be spending more time um, messing with GarageBand on my computer. Um, maybe we should move to that. Tell me some of the basics that a beginner should know about processing recorded music. Well, first, processing is, is the second part of it. The first part is capturing it. Mm. So, you, you know, you need to have an, a microphone or microphones that can give you a good, clean, accurate representation of, of the source. So you want to start in a room that, that's awfully dead, you know, carpeted, maybe some soundproofing material, not soundproofing material, but sound absorbent material. So there's no reflections. One of the things that we deal with regularly is, you've, you've probably heard tons of live video. This, this recording right now probably doesn't sound as clean as it would be if I had a microphone near my face. What happens is the reflections of the room, the room sound, are eliminated by our ears. It's called psychoacoustics. And if, if you've got two ears, you come into a room and, you're, and your brain processes all the noise out, all that extra reflection. And if you're in a bar, someone talks to you, you have two ears, you can, you can hear the person. Of course, it helps if you can see their mouth. Put, put a finger in, in one of your ears and you suddenly can't locate the person. It's really hard to hear because you can't process the directivity of the sound. So you wanna have, a, a dead room is important, a quiet room. And then the, the next part of that, of course, the microphone needs to be capable of picking up all of the, the full frequency range of the instrument. You know, a, a string bass, a piano has, they have a tremendously low, low frequency. They start in a, at a very low frequency. A bass drum is probably the lowest frequency. So you need a microphone that has a big, large, large diaphragm that responds to that. If you have something as high as like a violin, you need, some, you need a microphone that can record very, very high frequencies. And of course, most good recording mics have a, a wonderfully wide frequency range today. So it's not that big a deal. Anyway, so the, with the microphone, then you have to have a good clean audio path into the computer. So that the next thing would be some sort of an analog to digital converter. And once, once it's in the computer, then as long as you're using a relatively high sample rate and bit depth, you can get a really clean articulate, uh, accurate representation of that sound. Generally speaking, MP3s are, are you, you take the CD 44.1K uh, sample rate, cut it in half, and the bit depth goes similarly. And of course, what happens is that the more samples you have, the bigger the file is. The, the nice thing about audio is compared to video, audio is teeny. So we're able today to, with, with a relatively simple machine, get really nice high quality audio. And, and then you need to be able to manipulate it. 
record it, record it with a good microphone through a good clean interface at the highest bit depth and sample rate that you can afford with, with the processing that you have. And that'll give you the most natural, clean, original sound you can start with. And then from there you process. So you want to start super clean and then manipulate it. What are the things that an average non-audiophile can notice? The difference between uh, a well-recorded piece of sound or music or voice. What I want to know is, I'm sure that experienced sound engineers and audiophiles can hear a great deal more than the average person can. What are the things that, that they can hear that, that just somebody listening to an MP3 wouldn't notice? Well, more importantly, I, what I hear fuzziness. I hear uh, the distortion, a lack, of, a lack of clarity, a lack of dynamic range. It just sounds blurry to me. But I've spent a large portion of my life listening to very high quality and try and as a, as a recordist to really listen critically to my work. So I would record with the best microphones that we had, which weren't great microphones and set up my not hundreds, but maybe hundreds uh, of, of recitals. And so the, the old analog recordings just sounded some, somehow warmer and more, more like you're there. The early digital recordings, I thought I heard extra, extra like overblowing in a trombone or you now trumpets can get like a, an edgy sound to them, a string sound, shimmery uh, in, in, in digital recordings. I mean, some really high quality old Sony CDs I've heard were just like, where did the maracas come from in a, in a, in a Mozart symphony? I mean, literally, <laughs> you sort of hear these weird apparitions. But today, well, the, the biggest mistake is not getting the microphone close enough to the face, to the source. So of course, audio is, audio is the one thing that if you miss a syllable, you can, you can lose the, the, the intelligence, the meaning of the phrase. If the video glitches, it's not such a big deal, but you really have to have good, clean audio, which it's really become a given these days, which I, I love. Anyway, so putting the, having the microphone relatively close to the source is a big, big deal. And again, the, the dead, quiet, quiet room, no background noise. So soundproofing is one thing that's sound absorbing. You know, sound absorbent material doesn't make a room soundproof, but it makes it so you don't get a lot of reflection. And the reflection can sort of blur the sound, going back to that psychoacoustic thing. I'm going to read up on psychoacoustics. That sounds really interesting. In physics, I love physics. I, you know, to me, life is one long physics demonstration. You know, I'll, I'll walk down hallways and I'll close my eyes and clap and listen to see if I could be a bat and stay centered in a hallway. I always cheat with my eyes just to see where I'm at. But I'll tap, I'll, I, I tap on things. And if I go into a room, if you've ever watched me go into a room to set up for fuzzy, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm trying to see what, what, I'm, what I'm fighting with for a resonance. That's always the sound engineer's problems are, are going to be room resonance. So not you can't with a clap you can't hear it, but it's at least you know what how echoey it is. The physics that are important for sound is characteristics of rooms, the reflectivity of the walls. So a hard painted shiny wall will have the most full range even reflection of, of, of sound. So the sibilance is the first thing to go. Higher the frequency, the harder it is for a wall to to reflect it and the more dispersed it is. Another, another really important thing is, is the whole concept of resonance. So sound is a pressure wave and, and a decompression wave, but it's a, it's, a sound, it's a sound pressure, like it's a push-pull of molecules, being, energy being transmitted through the air in waves. And the lower the frequency, the longer the wavelength. 
and it was basically represented usually as a sinusoidal, the, the sine wave. Mm -hmm. So the lower the frequency, the longer the wave is, the shorter the frequency, some like high frequencies are super, super short. So certain rooms are sensitive to a certain frequency, a certain note? And... Every room, every oh, okay. room will have, will, will have resonance. Not, they're not sensitive to, if you take, it's called a, a sine wave generator. You could actually literally start at 40 hertz, the low E on a bass, on, on a bass guitar. Just bring it up through the range. You will hear it getting louder and softer, even if your audio reproduction system is absolutely flat, even frequency response. You'll hear loud, loud notes and soft notes. And those loud notes are probably going to be, they're going to be resonances. There's also nodes, which is when, it, when, it, when a standing wave res, um, resonates, bounces off one wall, you, you can be at a place where two peaks meet, and then it'll be really loud there. Then you move, you know, six inches away, and then it's suddenly softer. We're, so the, so the, two, the two waves crossing, it's like um, rogue waves in the ocean. You get two, two waveforms coming, and they're out of frequency, and they, they mess each other up, and then at some point, they get in, in tune, and then suddenly the two add, and you get an extra volume. That's what, that's what a rogue wave is. That's what a node is in, in a room. Every room has nodes, unless it's irregular. Unfortunately, most, fortunately, unfortunately, most rooms are square or, or rectangular, and it's, it's parallel walls are your enemy. So parallel walls, parallel ceiling and floor, you know, the, the first thing to do is to, is to cover one of the parallel walls with something that absorbs sound or make it irregular. So if I, if I wanted to learn more about this, it's room resonance, is that what I'd look up? It's just acoustics. Okay. Oh, okay. The science of acoustics. Oh, I have so much to learn. Okay. Um, this is way off your, off your question now, the question about how to, what does the average person need to know. I would say record and then listen. L listen to it. Compare. Listen to other people's recordings. Try to find out where, they, where their microphone was. So the next thing that can happen, if you get it too close, then you get the P's, the plosives. I guess B has it as well. The breath coming out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. Can that, that wave front of actual, it's just a single pulse can really affect the, the microphone. You know, a microphone is just simply a, a, a diaphragm that moves in, in the airspace, and, and that motion is sensed electronically, either by a near surface or it has like a little, like a little, little mini speaker, like a voice coil on it, and then it moves in a magnet, and that generates an electro, electrical current. But it's basically a flat surface that then the wind of your voice, it's really sensitive to that. So you get this tremendous bit of electrical energy. That's something to watch out for. And it's difficult to process. I, I hear a lot of, like if you have a microphone over your ear, if it's in front of your mouth, you can get all kinds of distortion. That little diaphragm moving around can bottom out and top out because it has limits as how far it can move. And that causes all kinds of weird distortion. And it's also not linear because it's, it's, it's so far below what we can hear. The frequency doesn't add anything to our understanding. It just distorts the sound. So you try to eliminate that with a windscreen, or just don't put it in front of your mouth, put it right next to your mouth. Okay, so I see in my GarageBand setup various controls for EQ and compression and blah, blah, blah. What are some of the main ones and what do they do? First one is equalization, which at, at the simplest is like the bass and treble control on your, on your stereo. Or, so bass and treble are, are loosely about 100 hertz, which is the very bottom of the human voice. 
And the treble is the sibilance, the clarity, which is usually 8,000 or 10,000 hertz. One basic concept of, of sound is the change in frequency, it's, it's a multiple. So in every octave, you've heard of A440? A440 is the concert A. Um, oh, yes, I have. Okay, yes. It's a lot, lot, most of your tuning forks are A440. Orchestras can tune a little sharper, a little flat. So you'll say you're an A442 or A436. It gives it, it's, it gives it a really different sound. Most instruments can't go, don't have a wide range. So all electronic instruments are meant to be A440 from octave to octave. So the next A lower from A440 is A220. So in an octave, it's the, the frequency doubles. So you go 220, 440, 880, 1720, et cetera. 1760, excuse me. If you see an equalizer, you'll see the numbers at the, at the lower octaves are going to be 30 to 60, 60 to 120, 120 to 240, 240 to 480, etc. So, so each time it doubles, that's only an octave. If you really want to understand equalization, it's cool to get, I've seen online pictures of a piano keyboard with the frequencies listed for each note. So you get an idea of what your equal, of how the equalizer works. What, the equal, what an equalizer does is it's assigned to a frequency band. The, the more sliders on the, on the equalizer, the more control you have, the more granular you can get it to be. Generally speaking, the lower frequencies will have a lower number. Anything below, let's say 40, 30 hertz is just trash. You really want to have that cut out. Most electronic, most microphones don't pick up anything below, say, 30 hertz anyway. It's, it's really the low rumbly, scary sound effects for, for movies. And as a bass player, I'm now doing five strings. So my, my low string is 31 hertz. So I'm all, I'm all about the, the, the speaker having, having that kind of sound. I love the low, the low. But um, <laughs> if you look at the piano, then you realize the high end of the piano is only like 5,000 hertz. When we were young, we could hear to 20,000 hertz. There's all kinds of the, the wind noise and hiss and stuff. As a 67-year-old man, I can't hear anything over, over 10,000, probably even 8,000 at this point. So I've lost my highs. I can't be a sound engineer anymore because I can't hear it. I don't notice it. I, I think I notice things aren't quite as clear as they once were. I'm not quite maybe hearing you know, the clarity. It happens so slowly, you get used to it. It's not like a, I still love to hear music. It's not like it, it's suddenly lost to me. Or if you look at every, every frequency, band will have a number related to it. And it's, it's kind of good to know what that band is, but always listen to play with it, raise it up and see what it sounds like, pull it down in, individually. A, a lot of people like the smiley face curve. You boost the bass and then you take the middle down and then you boost the highs. It gives it that sort of, so it sounds more exciting. It's unnatural. So that's equalization. The, the more granular, the better for frequency, for feedback control. And if you've got resonance issues, some microphones have extra sibilance in them. Some sopranos have harmonics in their voice that are sort of frequency related. And then microphones tend to have a presence peak to make them sound more clear. And if you get a microphone that doesn't line up well with the singer's voice, you can have awful, just painful. You know, a singer will be singing along and then she'll go to a note where the composition of her voice, the timbre of her voice, lines up with a, a presence peak in a microphone. And you can have just shrill deafening way way too much way too many highs that's why sound companies will have a lot of different microphones in our studio we've only, I've only had three or four microphones to work with so it's not like i haven't really had a chance to do a lot of 
microphone selection in our little little studio at the college. So equalization, you shouldn't really use it to change the tone of things because you're actually changing the, the frequency response of notes. If you, if, you're, if you really do the middle, do the whole, the whole range, you can actually make someone's a melody line get louder and softer by, by equalizing it. Because an equalizer is, is mathematical, it's not acoustic. Every, everything we do once the mic microphone has captured the, the sound, it's purely mathematical. So that's why uh, making it sound good naturally first is, is the key. As an aside, as a bass player, I've heard tones of, of other bass players and I've wanted to get these sounds. And I had, for, for years, I had a 31 band equalizer, which is the, the most granular you can get. And I'm making, I'm making my, low, my low notes sound wonderful. And, and then, I, then I play up high and, and the notes are, are thin in the middle. Then I get up near the high G and then suddenly they're really loud again because I'm bringing up that I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give it a, a nasally sound. At one point, I was trying to be Jaco Pastorius, and his sound is kind of, it's bassy. It's got a lot of, a lot of bottom, but then it's also got that, that nasal sound. You, what you were just describing, the 31-band the equalizer that you were just, that, that's something that you had on your individual instrument for live performances, is that? I had it in my amp rack. You know, I had, oh, okay. Back when I was on the road, I had a big old SVT, an amplifier, and it had, you just patch out, it's like a preamp out, power amp in. It's like an effects device. The reason I mentioned 31 band equalizers because I think I've seen them represented often as an effect when you go to GarageBand or I use Audacity these days. Equalization can be graphic. They call it, it's, it's called a graphic EQ, and a graphic representation of the sound spectrum from low to high. And depending on, on the level of equalizer, you can have you know 10 is not unusual, 15 is good. 31 band happens to be I think it's three bands per octave. So they're one third octave equalizers. The other kind of EQ is called parametric. That refers to the parameters are adjustable. Q means how tight the response is. And you can have a wide Q or a narrow Q. And the narrow Q is good for feedback control or if you've got a specific note that's bothering you. For tone shaping, a wide Q is good. And then the other, other side of that, we have shelving filters. And a shelving filter, again, it, it, it's more about how you look at it. A shelving filter for bass means that at a certain frequency, it boosts that and, and everything below it. Where on a 31-band equalizer or a regular equalizer, it'll boost a range. So you're boosting, let's say you take the, the slider that says 100. So at 100 hertz, you bring that up and you're bringing up the, the notes around it. The further you get from 100, you're still bringing those up, but not as much as 100 which is the flaw of a mathematical graphic equalizer. That's why there are three bands per octave in the 31 band. It gives you, again, more granular, tighter control. But bass and treble generally are shelving filters. So if you have too many highs, you turn down all the highs, not just one particular frequency. When you turn the bass up or down, you're turning up the bass, the low bass. It's usually 80 or 100 hertz, which is just below where the human bass voice can sing. So right around there, and you're turning down that, but everything below it. So one of the things we talked about with microphones, if they get too close, so a pop filter, a pop is a dynamic thing, but it's also a frequency thing. So take everything below 100 hertz out. For a female voice, you can go to 150 hertz, and then you're going to really eliminate the, the pop. You'll still hear a click, because it's, it's a broad band of energy. That, that pop is pretty all frequency, but... So the, the important thing is to stop it with a foam wind or pop filter. 
I've seen mesh screens. They put in studio microphones in front of the, in front of the microphone, um, which is really the best thing. I, I have a foam one and a mesh screen, and I can still pop my peas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're I, so powerful. I am. I'm very powerful. <laughs> yes. Okay, so what causes feedback and how can you stop it? I'm talking about on a stage when, I, when I'm, I'm singing and suddenly if I move over to the microphone, it starts squealing. Well, feedback, most simply put, is the sound from the microphone it's coming back the microphone and being reamplified. Mm-hmm. It's caused by placement. The microphone is too close to the speaker. Or as, we, as I was talking about earlier, there can be resonances in the room. And every time you hear, it's going to be one pitch that starts to run away, usually. That's where you need an equalizer that has the ability to do a real narrow notch. Because if you can just pick out the frequency that's feeding back, it's probably not going to be one you're going to sing. It might be near one. And if you can just get that frequency out, the musical experience is still complete and the feedback is gone because you've taken out those little sensitive things. No microphone system is perfect. It's not even from 50 hertz to 10,000 hertz. It's always, it responds to different frequencies a little bit unevenly. Speakers are never perfect. They don't produce an even frequency response from below their lowest notes, which whatever that might be, up to 10,000 hertz, which is pretty much practical for PAs. So it's the combination of those two factors give you the tendency, and then if it's just literally too loud. And of course, the other part of it would be room resonance. If you have very reflective walls, if you're in a small place, a room with bright, hard, square walls, in a rectangular room, it's going to be bouncing back toward you. And even though the speaker's pointed away from you, it's still going to be coming off the back wall. Microphones are generally directional. Some microphones are very directional. Basic directionality is called cardioid. The response diagram looks like a heart. Cardio, heart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Then the next one beyond that is supercardio, which means it's a little more directional. It's where it's more directional. And then hypercardioid is even more directional. If you've ever seen those long microphones and outdoors, they put them in like these, they call them uh, Zeppelins. They look like a big, long piece of sausage with fuzz on the outside. Mm-hmm. Or, um, those are, those are actually windscreens for a shot. They call them a shotgun microphone. Still a shotgun microphone is, is, is the most directional and those, those would help. So a hypercardioid microphone would help. The acoustic tricks they do to make a microphone cardioid or hypercardioid change the frequency response. So you can have little nodes of, of sensitivity. And of course, the other, other thing that happens when you get that is you get that base proximity effect. You know, when, you, when you take a microphone and get it really close to your face, suddenly you get this big, deep boominess. Mm-hmm. That has to do with the cardioid effect of the microphone. I love that microphone because I have such a high voice that as a bass player, I always wanted to have a deep voice. <laughs> I always liked to, to eat my microphone, and, and I liked the sound of my voice when it was really close. Yeah. But other people in the audience didn't have the same taste in my voice as I did. Right. Well, the difficulty there is that, as a sound engineer in me, I always wanted to put a little bit of compression on a voice so that when that happened, you didn't get... What's, what's happening is the closer you get, the louder it gets and the deeper it gets. So if you're looking for that deepness, 
you're making everything really, really loud. The way sound works, it just, you get so much more energy. So what I like to do is I like to set my audio limiting to a point where it doesn't affect you until you really get on it. And then when you really get on it, then it holds it back, never completely, but a little bit to sort of protect from, you know, the real um, aggressive user of the microphone. It's also important that the person be able to hear what they're doing with the microphone. That to me, that's why a, a good monitor system that doesn't feedback to let you know what the effect is, um, is, is, is really good. But that's, that's, a, that's not recording, that's, that's live performance, which is so, incredibly complicated. So compression and limiting, are they the same thing? Sort of. So that's is, this is another is, effect we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, what is compression? Compression is dynamic control. So sound starts at nothing-ish, and it goes to <laughs> a jet engine. And no PA system can handle nothing to a jet engine. Well, pardon me, modern PAs can. But in recording, you have a relatively limited dynamic range. Natural acoustic instruments, the voice, have a much wider dynamic range than virtually any recording system or any playback system. So you have to somehow control that, the lows to the highs. It's built in naturally to speakers. They can only, at some point, they don't respond in a linear fashion to what's happening. That's called uh, harmonic distortion or just plain distortion. Is that so, like when you're pegging it, when you're too loud, is that the same thing? Pegging it, that's a, that's a way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, don't want to go into the amplifier part of it, but you literally can't go above a certain level. So what compression does is it just holds back the volume gain. There are three settings for compression. Sensitivity, that's where it starts to compress. Ratio, which is how much it compresses. So like my favorite setting was about two to one which is what television does. Television uses a two to one compression ratio, but they start it really, really early. So that means it takes two dB of audio gain to get one dB out through the system. The third parameter is called release. I left my release on absolute immediate. So it just purely control at a relatively high level. And once you hit that level, the more energy you put in, you didn't get quite the same amount out, which is ratio. So like two to one, you had to sing twice as hard to get one dB out as you would normally. Does that make sense? Yes, but I, I've lost the reason why you'd want that. Well, because some people can't really hear what's happening in a band situation. So again, we're going back to live sound again. Let, let's forget the live sound. It's just because you don't have as much dynamic range in your recording system that you do with your voice. So you have to keep it within that range. Because if you don't, then you will get distortion? You get distorted, right. Okay. Another thing, too, is, as we talked about before we started this, the transmission systems have relatively limited dynamic range. So there's going to be, there's all kinds of compression happening between USA and Italy. I mean, there's, well, actually, it's happening right in my computer here and in your computer there when you record. So it, it really limits it to what, what can be sent. It also limits the frequency range. So it's not sending super low or super high. Remember, you used to pick up a telephone back in the day. The telephone voice was a very narrow range. It was like mm -hmm. three or 400 hertz to about 5,000 hertz. And that was, if you want to make someone sound like they're on the telephone, you, you go through equalizer and just take the highs and lows out. And it sounds just like you're on the old AT&T phone. So what a limiter does is it's normally set at a relatively high. It doesn't start until you're pretty loud. 
but it's got an infinite ratio. So basically, it caps the loudness at a particular spot and doesn't let it go any further. So that in theory, we haven't really talked about the waveform, but the sine wave, it's a graphic representation of voltage. And at some point, the amplifier won't have any more voltage to give. At some point, a speaker can't push any further because it's pushing the air, and then it's pulling it back, pulling it, pushing and pulling it. So at, at some point, you have to just stop it. So that clipping distortion, what it does is it makes, it changes the wave. It, it changes the frequency content of the wave. The sound is, it's amazingly complicated. It really is. It's not yeah. just me. No. <laughs> no, but I am really fascinated. Okay, I have one more question. So tell me about reverb. So reverb is a controlled. We talked about room reflection and how that can confuse sound. Well, it also warms it. You know, if you walk into a room that's really dead, you, f you feel like you're deaf. You feel horrible. You don't, you, we're used to hearing reflection. In a, in a little room, it's still reverb. Reverb is the multi-path reflection that the sounds we're making that come back to our ears. For us, I think it gives us, gives us a sense of we're not talking to nowhere, to no one. Everyone is used to hearing a little bit of, of return. That's why we have monitors on stage. You want to hear yourself. You want, of course, monitors on stage. You usually want to hear the rest of the band. So what reverb, what the effect reverb is, it, it gives you generally the long reflection of, of a concert hall. So you're in a big room with all these relatively hard reflective surfaces. You, you, you sing, and then your voice is reinforced by the reflection. So what we do when we record something, we record it super dry and then give it some warmth with reverb. If you look at your, your reverb settings, they're gonna be room sizes. They're gonna be concert hall. It's gonna be, you know, cavern. And, and generally, so, so the parameters there would be early reflection. So that's near reflection, you know, long reflection. So sound would bounce off a wall and bounce off another wall and, and then finally get back to you. So that's like a multi-path reverb just how, how much reverb so that that's like a, another ratio thing how much you have of the original sound how much you hear of the early reflection how much you hear of the general and then you have decay i was telling you i, I would walk into a room and i would clap mm -hmm. what i'm listening to more than anything else is is how fast that reverb dies down a clap is a really sharp relatively broadband wave of energy that goes out and then it comes back you can hear it coming back to you and how and how fast that drops gives you an idea of how clear the sound is going to be in the room but so reverb is just controlled addition of sometimes unwanted effect there definitely are rooms that are ideal you know the i think it was the greek had an ideal room for sound and the, the ratio was one unit wide by 1.67 so 10 feet by 16.7 feet mm -hmm. and then 26 feet tall. And that's, that's the ideal sound. That's what the, I think it was the Greek determined as the ideal sounding room, which is based on their ear. So a lot, a lot of rooms were built that sort of in mind. I imagine you guys have seen some pretty amazing buildings over there. If you ever listen to the sounds in those rooms, it can be, you know, I'm sure amazing. That so, is very true. Again, it's part of acoustics. I really appreciate it. You, you were talking way over my head, but it was fascinating. And it was exactly what I wanted to hear because now I know 
some things that I can go and research more about. I guess my, my, my closing comment would be, trust your ears, listen, you know, do something, do a recording and repeat and, and, and listen to it. And, and really just don't try not to judge it. Just, and then maybe change something and try to see what it was, you know, listen carefully and trust your ear. As a sound person, I always say that my mix is my opinion. Mm, mm, you may not, you may not agree. So I, I try to, you know, of course, please the band, make the band comfortable, but it's my opinion. So your opinion of what it's, what sounds good is perfectly valid. Try to, you know, those the things we talked about, pay attention to those and, uh, Trust your ear. That's perfect. Ears. <laughs> Thank you. That was well said. My warm thanks to Steve Armstrong. And I invite everyone to tell me what you've always wanted to try and how you're making the most of this found time. Also, please take a moment to fill out a brief survey so I can find out more about you. You'll find it at lizsumner.com survey. I'm Liz Sumner, reminding you to be bold, stay safe, and thanks for listening.